You're listening to the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast, a series of conversations with Chinese and international experts on China's foreign policy, international role, and China's relations with the world. Brought to you from the Carnegie Tsinghua Center located here in Beijing. I'm Paul Hanley, the director of the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, and I'll be your host. Today I'm delighted to be joined by James Acton, visiting from the Washington, D.C. office of Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. James Acton is co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program and a senior associate at the Carnegie Endowment. A physicist by training, James specializes in deterrence, disarmament, nonproliferation, and nuclear energy. His research, current research focuses on the nuclear fuel cycle in Japan and hypersonic conventional weapons and is regarded as among the most influential and authoritative on this subject. James, thank you for being here today. Thank you for doing the podcast. And thank you for doing uh, an event here at the Carnegie Tsinghua Center today. Thank you for having me. It's always good to be back in Beijing, Paul. So for over a decade, uh, the United States has sought to develop this long-range hypersonic conventional weapons for the conventional global, conventional prompt global strike CPGS program. The successful testing of the advanced hypersonic weapon in November 2011 marked an important breakthrough in U.S. efforts. But a second test in August of this year was unsuccessful. Developing these weapons could have important implications, both positive and negative, for this region in the Asia-Pacific. So I'm glad that you're here with us to examine the status of U.S. conventional propped global strikes uh, program and assess its implications for regional and global security, as well as the potential for the U.S. and China to explore confidence-building measures that could potentially reduce the risks of developing hypersonic weapons and instead enhance strategic stability. Let me just start by asking you very basically, what is a hypersonic weapon system? Can you describe the conventional prompt global strike program? How do these systems work? Well, Paul, a hypersonic weapon is any weapon that goes faster than five times the speed of sound. That's Mach 5. And there's been uh, an effort in a number of countries over the last decade or so to develop very long-range prompt weapon systems that can deliver non-nuclear weapons. And there's a number of technological approaches to doing that. But one of the approaches, the one that's being focused on in the conventional prompt global strike program, is so-called boost glide technology. Uh, and these are launched by large rockets. But rather than going into space and arcing high above the atmosphere, uh, they re-enter the atmosphere quickly at very high speeds and release a glider. And that glider uh, can stay aloft uh, potentially for thousands of kilometers, uh, and it's unpowered. It's just continuing under its own inertia. Uh, and that's the, the, those boost glide weapons are the current focus of the conventional prompt global strike program. Mm -hmm. And why, at this moment, is there new interest in the U.S. in this system? Well... As you noted in the introduction, this has been going on for a decade at the moment. Uh, and I should emphasize, firstly, this is a research and development program. Mm. These weapons have not yet been deployed. In fact, the U.S. hasn't yet taken a decision about whether or not it wants to acquire mm -hmm. them. Uh, instead, the focus is on um, currently on research and development. And I would say this is a program driven by technology. Uh, the developer's philosophy is to develop it first and then work out what to do with it. Mm. You uh, mentioned today 
that during the Bush administration that there was a concept on capabilities-based mm -hmm. planning, but that this and, and 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 but that this is not that this was a system that's based on that rather than basing it on threats. Can you explain right. that a little bit? So during during the Cold War, uh, U.S. defense policies, the U.S. defense posture uh, uh, adopted an approach called def called threat-based planning. Uh, the goal was to identify what threats there were and to develop weapons to counter particular threats. What the Bush administration argued uh, was that actually it was very hard to predict what the threats were. Threats were unpredictable. So rather than developing weapons to respond to particular threats, one should develop weapons that might be useful in a whole range of different mm -hmm. scenarios and that brought particular capabilities to bear. Mm. and that one should focus on developing capabilities rather than responding to threats. And conventional prompt global strike was an example of this capabilities-based planning. The Bush administration didn't articulate particular missions for it. Instead, this could be useful in a whole range of different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And this administration has also said that this system is not about specific scenarios. However, they have developed or talked about possible missions that this can right. be used in. I mean, I, I think kind of the Obama administration is more sympathetic to threat-based planning. It's kind of moving back in that direction. Yeah. But yeah, so you know, firstly, the U.S. hasn't decided what CPGS is for. However, senior officials and in some official documents have said, we are thinking about the possibility of using them or acquiring them for a number of different purposes. So these are possible missions. This mm -hmm. is not a concept of operations. This is not a doctrine. These are possible uses for which CPGS weapons might be acquired. And they include attacking the nuclear forces of North Korea, or perhaps in the future, Iran. Um, secondly, attacking uh, advanced anti-satellite capabilities. And that mission is largely about China. Mm. Thirdly, is suppressing advanced defensive systems, which is mostly but not entirely about China. Uh, and fourthly, is the counterterrorism mission. Uh, and those are, you know, I emphasize again, each one of those is a possible mission. This is not a list of missions that have already been decided for CPGS. During your time here um, and during your research, what do you understand the Chinese concerns about this system to be? Well, You'll notice that the first mission I identified was attacking the nuclear forces of Iran or North Korea. There is deep fear in China, um, and for that matter in Russia as well, that actually conventional prompt global strike is about holding Chinese or Russian nuclear forces at risk. Now, I don't, there's not much evidence, in my opinion, that the U.S. seeks to use conventional prompt global strike weapons in that way. However, I think Chinese fears that that's what the U.S. wants to do are, are, are genuine, and there's real fear about that here. And, and you wrote an, an op-ed in the New York Times that mentioned that the most recent defense white paper put out by China for the first time did not mention no first use. Do you see any correlation with the development of this, the research by the U.S. into these kind of systems and changing shift? slight shifts in doctrine by the, by the Chinese? Well, uh, I, mean, I mean, let me tell you um, about one of the responses to my op-ed from General Yao Yunzhu at the Academy of Military Sciences. Um, and I haven't got it in front of me, so I apologize if I misquote her slightly. But, you know, what she said is China has consistently upheld its no-first-use doctrine. 
and is not going to change it. But then she said, you know, we do have concerns and we are concerned about, the, in particular, the combination of conventional advanced weapons uh, with ballistic missile defense. Uh, and, you know, we do have a fear that these two could be used together uh, so that the U.S. could disarm China's nuclear forces and the U.S. wouldn't need to use nukes in the process. So I think, I think there is a relationship between the development of these U.S. capabilities and concerns within China that lead to uh, 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 some debate within China about no first use. Um, let's talk about the view of Congress mm -hmm. in the United States because understand that there are some developments in Congress um, that may put fuel on the fire to this question or exacerbate these concerns. Can you talk about uh, Congress's uh, mandated study? Yes. Um, so in the, oh, I think it was the 20, uh, 2014 National Defense Authorization Act, Congress required the Department of Defense to do a study on the ability of U.S. conventional and nuclear weapons to attack underground Chinese targets. Uh, and this was, you know, many Chinese scholars have argued that this is evidence that the U.S. does seek to use nuclear weapons to attack, uh, sorry, that the U.S. does seek to use conventional weapons to attack China's nuclear forces because some of those tunnels are for uh, are reportedly hiding China's nuclear forces in. Um, and, and, you know, this is one of those times when I think, you know, it, it's kind of almost trite to remark, but there's mm -hmm. a lack of, you know, neither side, neither the U.S. nor China has a good understanding of one mm -hmm. another's political systems and the internal dynamics. And, you know, just because, you know, Congress doesn't set U.S. military posture and, you know, the president can't stop Congress from ordering a study on something, but that doesn't mean it's actually national, U.S. national policy to use conventional weapons to undermine China's nuclear forces. So, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's one example of the way in which Congress can kind of sometimes stir things up between the U.S. and China. Well, let me then just ask you, do you think it's, it's the U.S. intention within the Defense Department, Defense Establishment, to consider using conventional prompt global strike to attack Chinese nuclear weapons as part of strategy? No, I, I, I don't think it is. And as I've said before, you know, um, what, you know, the Obama administration in its nuclear posture review said specifically that conventional prompt global strike is not intended to undermine the strategic balance with either Russia or China. So I don't believe it's U.S. policy to use uh, conventional prompt global strike to target China's nuclear forces. That said, I do accept that Chinese concerns on this, on this score are genuine. Mm -hmm. Like, there is, there is genuine concern about this in China. One of the things I know you have said in, in, in relation to whether or not it's U.S. intention to use the system to attack nuclear weapons is that it would be very hard to do, mm -hmm. to do that. Can you expound on that a bit? Why would it be hard to use this conventional prompt global strike to attack nuclear weapons? Well, China's been spending a lot of money over the past really two decades on increasing the mobility of its nuclear forces. And the single most important part of that process has been uh, moving its, uh, uh, rather than having um, intercontinental ballistic missiles in silos. Mm. Uh, and I believe that Chinese experts sometimes refer to them as missile tombs because, <laughs> you know, is where missiles go to die. 
China has been instead focusing on road mobile ballistic missiles. The challenge is working out where they are. Tracking mobile missiles in a country as large as China with as good air defenses as China is a tremendous challenge. And let me give you an example of the scale of the challenge. Um, in the first Gulf War in 1991, the United States tried to hunt down Iraq's force of mobile Scuds. And the US flew 1,460 sorties against mobile Scud-related targets. And it had a grand total of zero confirmed kills. Mm -hmm. And that is an example of the extreme difficulty of hunting down mobile missiles. Now, the Israelis... Uh in their efforts to destroy Hezbollah missiles have had a higher rate of success. Right. And so does that undercut your argument? I don't think it does when you look at specifically the way that Israel did it. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of differences, but to highlight the most important one, what Israel did was when it was hunting Hezbollah's mobile missiles, or more correct, call them mobile rockets, it waited until the rocket had been fired detected the plume from the rocket so it knew where it had been fired from and then destroyed the launcher with the goal of preventing the launcher from being reused. If the US were hypothetically to go hunting Chinese mobile missiles, there wouldn't be much point destroying the launcher after, after the, the nuclear yeah. missile has been fired. Right. Um, you know, the, the US goal would not be to prevent China from reusing the launcher. Right. Uh, it would be from preventing the nuclear weapon from being fired in the first place. So there are real, you know, there's a whole series of reasons like that to say that even though Israel was very effective against Hezbollah in 2006, or relatively effective against Hezbollah in 2006, it's very unlikely that the U.S. would be nearly so effective against China. Understand. James, in your uh, very good report, uh, Silver Bullet, uh, which you published on this, you talk about the risk of escalation mm -hmm. of this kind of system. One, of course, would be if the U.S. were using it to strike a North Korea nuclear weapons, of course, and China was able to observe it on the way, they would not know whether or not it was coming directed at China right. or directed at North Korea. Can you talk about some of these escalation risks that sure. you highlight in your report? So in the report, which, if you'll forgive a shameless plug, is freely available <laughs> on the Carnegie website, um, you know, I try to... I'm not... I don't come out for or against this system. I'm trying to explore the advantages and disadvantages and uh, benefits and risks. And some of the risks relate to escalation. So you know, let me give you another example of a potential escalatory risk. Um, one potential use, uh, like uh, one potential target, I should say, for conventional prompt global strike weapons conceivably might be Chinese command and control for its missile forces. Uh, some of that's reportedly buried, and because they go very fast, conventional prompt global strike weapons could be more effective at attacking buried targets. It has been reported, correctly or otherwise, I don't know, that Chinese command and control, China has the same command and control system for its nuclear forces as for its conventional forces. Mm. So if the United States were to attack Chinese, con uh, to attack this command and control system, for the purpose of suppressing China's conventional ballistic missiles, would China interpret that as an attack to designed to deny Beijing control of its nuclear forces? 
And if China did interpret it in that way, might it have cause to escalate to the nuclear level? Those are the kind of escalatory risks that I don't think we're discussing or talking about. And enough. this you define as target ambiguity. Correct, because it's ambiguity about the nature of the target. Is the United States trying to target a nuclear target or a conventional target? And what I described is, is not knowing where the missile's going, you, you define as destination ambiguity. Right. And there's another category called warhead, warhead ambiguity. ambiguity. Can you describe what that is? So in this case, um, the um, um, it, it's, probably, it's possibly helpful to look at this historically. The first plan for conventional prompt global strike weapons was, in fact, not these boost glide weapons. It was to take warheads off some of the sea-launched ballistic missiles, the Trident missiles, that the U.S. currently uses to deliver nukes and to replace some of those warheads with conventional uh, nuclear warheads with conventional warheads. And that was known as the conventional Trident modification. And Congress was very worried that if, particularly Russia, detected the launch of a conventional Trident, it would mistake it for a nuclear okay. Trident and launch a nuclear response. So that was ambiguity about the nature of the warhead. That was warhead ambiguity, and that's another escalatory risk. And the last uh, category you define as crisis right. ambiguity, so crisis instability. Crisis instability. So this is the case that uh, one of the long-held uh, uh, risks of nukes is the risk that if I think my nuclear forces are at risk, whether I'm right or not, in a deep crisis, I might face use or lose dynamic. I might decide to use nuclear weapons because I'm worried that if I don't, I will lose them. Um, even though I think that the purpose of CPGS is not to hold China's nuclear forces at risk, if China believes that's the purpose of CPGS, in a deep crisis, it could have an incentive to use a nuclear weapon first, and that's crisis instability. understand. So could you describe for us then some characteristics that we could look at with regard to this system that could make it less risky uh, in terms of developing? What should, what should we aim for in lowering the risk? Well, I, you know, it, it, it's, it's a great question. And the reality is there are trade-offs here. Mm. So, you know, let me give you two examples. Something that flies in a non-ballistic trajectory, something that's not a ballistic missile like a boost glide weapon, is an advantage because it probably reduces warhead ambiguity. Because you know, up to date, all American long-range missile, ballistic missiles have been nuclear. So if we use a boost glide weapon with a non-ballistic trajectory, that reduces warhead ambiguity. However, as you mentioned earlier, gliders are also able to maneuver. So that, whereas ballistic missiles are entirely predictable. Once a ballistic missile's engine has, has burnt out, you can predict exactly where the thing is going to land. It has no capability to maneuver. So in that case, you know, a ballistic missile increases warhead ambiguity, but avoids destination ambiguity. Whereas a boost glide weapon has, has destination ambiguity, but less warhead ambiguity. And at the moment, you know, in the US, we're entirely focused on warhead ambiguity. That's been the big factor affecting the development of the program. And I think it would be very useful to have, you know, in some sense it's the U.S. trying to work out what other countries are worried about, but they're not, mm -hmm. not really talking to those other countries. Mm. And I think it would be very helpful to have a, a more serious com international conversation about given there's no perfect system for reducing risks, 
given any system has some positive attributes and some negative attributes. What do we want to optimize and what are, uh, 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 and what are we willing to uh, optimize stuff at the expense of? So in that regard, let, let's come back to China then. As right. I understand it, China has acknowledged that it is working on a conventional ballistic missile system and has fielded such systems. Mm -hmm. Are there then cooperative measures that we can take with China potentially to reduce the risks? I think there are. I mean, as you noticed, you know, China, most famously China's DF-21D ballistic missile, uh, which is a conventional ballistic missile with an anti-ship function. Um, and you know there are media reports of other conventional ballistic missile systems in, under development. Um, and I think there is a lot that could be done to reduce risks. I mean, let me give you two concrete examples. Uh, one would be data exchanges between the two countries. Um, I think if China had more confidence about how many, you know, if the US decides to buy CPGS, how many systems it might buy, when it might buy them. If China had more confidence in that, then it might, you know, it would be less worried for the survivability of its nuclear forces. So those kind of data exchanges done on a reciprocal basis might be helpful. Uh, another example is, you know, some Chinese experts have said, actually, we're worried the U.S. might put nuclear weapons on boost glide vehicles. If that's a real concern, then one could imagine confidence-building measures such as inspections of systems to prove that their warheads were non-nuclear. So, you know, I think, I think cooperative measures are a lot more effective than unilateral risk reduction measures. And I think, in theory, there's a lot that could be done. Implementing them could be, you know, d agreeing upon them and implementing them could be very difficult. Well, James, thank you very much. Uh, this is an extremely uh, interesting topic. It's an important topic. And uh, you, as we, I said at the beginning, have done some of the most influential and authoritative work on this. And we appreciate you joining our podcast today and also coming to the Carnegie Tsinghua Center, and you're welcome back uh, anytime. And that's it for this edition of the Carnegie Tsinghua China and the World podcast. If you'd like to read or learn more about James Acton's research about the conventional prompt global strike system, uh, you can find more articles, events, and podcasts on the Carnegie Endowment's website at www.carnegieendowment.org. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next time.